prestige of the government had undoubtedly been lowered considerably by prohibition, Albert Einstein observed when he visited the United States in the early 1920s. Nothing is more destructive of respect for the government and the law of the land than laws which cannot be enforced. Good morning, Neil. How are you doing today? Morning. I'm uh, I'm drinking coffee. I'm not smoking weed, but <laughs> but um yeah, I've been been looking forward to this episode for a while. I'm sorry I picked the longest marijuana book in existence, but well, it's deceptive because it says it's only 390 pages, but the pages must be like I don't know, eleven by eleven coffee table size pages or something. So I have the physical copy. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, it's huge. Oh, it's massive. Like the book, I think eleven by. It, yeah, it's definitely like a full size page. Like it's not a paperback type <laughs> of uh, type of book. So yeah, the pages are long, even though yeah, three ninety. I guess doesn't sound that bad relative to some of the other books we've done, but yeah. they're big pages. But it's incredibly detailed. I think that was that was the good yeah. thing is he's not necessarily fluffing it up. There's just so much that has happened in the history of marijuana. And it's such an ancient plant, right? So that's the he kind of starts from the history and like all the way back to, I guess, Neolithic period mm-hmm. and then goes up through the present day. And the other cool thing about it is he touches on kind of every single aspect of it. So the scientific, the medical and the recreational history, um, as well as the legislative and like political history. Right. So there's a lot to cover in all of that. And of course, the book we're talking about is Smoke Signals by Martin Lee. Yeah. And to be fair, he does focus very much on the U.S. history of marijuana. This less international, basically no, almost no Asian or Middle Eastern side of the story. A little bit of Europe. Yeah, just a bit. I think France, right? Well, France and Amsterdam. And yep. But most of it is as Europe is interfacing with the U.S. around uh, marijuana. But he basically starts right when we were, I guess, forming the nation in like 1776 era. I guess a bit before that, too. It's like kind of as soon as the U.S. got uh, or started getting colonized, this became a topic of interest in one way or another. And then he takes it from there all the way up to, let's see, I think the last bit of history in the book is around 2009, 10? Uh, something like that. It's early in Obama's presidency. Yeah, it's early in his presidency. And I think it's before any of the recreational legalization stuff happened. Yeah, because that doesn't come up in the book. So it basically goes right up to when I think Colorado first legalized it. Legalized medical, I think. Uh, Well, yeah, sorry. I meant it touches, it hits up on the edge of when Colorado legalized uh, recreational. Yes. Yep. When was that? 2012. Okay. Yeah, that was right after this book came out, I think. Yeah. So probably there was already the push happening, but um, there wasn't like he didn't get to see what the effects were for the book. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's pretty like the history of it was really interesting because I didn't know. I think this came up on an earlier episode, but like I obviously have known it's been illegal for a long time and that's schedule one, but I didn't know how it became that way. And I also didn't know how uh, like before that era, how it was treated in in the US. And I think one of the funniest things, and I'm sure we'll get deeper into this, but one of the funniest things was at one point in time, it was a law that you had to grow it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you had to grow hemp. <laughs> yeah, It was like the exact opposite of prohibition. It was like you were required by law to grow uh, or I, think, I guess devote a certain percentage of your land to to hemp fertilization. Yeah, I think if you were <laughs> if you were farming, you had to because it was such a versatile crop. Right. Was that World War One, too? 
Uh, we'll find it. Yeah, it's in, it's when we get to that part of the book, we'll find it. But yeah, it was it was so interesting, and and yeah, there were tons of things like that throughout the book where it was kind of counter to uh, maybe what your impression of of this plant might have been. Yeah, cool. Well, I think we can just go ahead and jump in. This will be a little different from some of our books in that this is very much a linear history. So I think we'll just sort of walk through it and touch on the most interesting parts that stood out to us. I'm sure there'll be plenty of tangents along the way. Oh, of course. How could <laughs> there not be? But yeah, we, we did not we did not smoke up for the episode. Maybe maybe if we do a follow up. Maybe that could for the be for the Patreon, for one of the Patreon sessions. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Bonus Patreon episode where we just get high and do a recap. <laughs> yeah. That'd be kind of fun, actually. So if you want to if you want to be part of that, you should join our Patreon. I don't think we'd ever get past Go to Lusher Bach. We'd just be stuck there for <laughs> hours. We'd be in, stuck in loops. Yeah. <laughs> this book, I feel like, would have actually been really hard to discuss if we were stoned. Yeah, it's too, it's too linear and fact-based. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you need to do, like, finite and infinite games or something. Or go to Usher Buck, or even uh, the one we did uh, yesterday, Myth of Sisyphus. Myth of Sisyphus, that'd be a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any like the linear ones are tough to do. We got to start recording in uh, more chill states. Yeah. Virginia, New York, not not great for it. I guess Maryland. DC, apparently. Yeah. DC is DC's chill. We could have gone into DC, but c'est la vie. Next time. Next time. Austin's pretty much its own country, right? Yeah. Austin's basically its own country. <laughs> it's. <laughs> They just do whatever they want there. Exactly. Anyway, so the book starts off with a little bit of how old the history and the use of marijuana is. So, I I mean, the one thing that I thought was really, really crazy here is uh, they found that gravesite in China. Yeah. Uh, I'll just read from the book. They they found a cache of cannabis at a remote gravesite in northwest China. The well-preserved flower tops have been buried alongside a light-haired, blue-eyed Caucasian man, most likely a shaman of the Gushi culture, about 27 centuries ago. Biochemical analysis demonstrated that the herb contained THC, the main psychoactive ingredient in marijuana. So this is a shaman about a you know 700 years uh, before Common Era, who was using cannabis as either like for some ritual or for some healing practice. Uh, and that kind of fits with what we know to a certain extent of old tribe, you know, tribes all around the world using uh, psychedelics and other plant medicines to induce, you know, spirit journeys or uh, healing rituals or anything of that nature. Yeah, definitely. There's a, um, it didn't come up in this book, but even like the ancient Hindu texts, mm -hmm. They have something called Soma. Oh, yeah. Which also is in, uh, I think, Brave New World, right? That's also what they call. Yeah, that's the name in Brave New World. Yep. But so, so people have been speculating on what Soma is for, because like there's no like recipe for Soma. It seems to be a drink uh, from how it's written about or discussed, but nobody knows like what the ingredients are. So there's a lot of speculation on what it could be. And the best answer I've seen is that it's some type of mixture of, uh, of like psychedelic mushrooms and marijuana. That sounds fun. That all makes sense even with this uh, gravesite discovery, right? Because you're right. It, it seems to be almost like a global constant that people are using mind-altering drugs for spiritual experiences, even alcohol to an extent. I was going to say, have you heard the theory that the events of the Bible where Moses speaks to God and receives the Ten Commandments, that the speculation is that he was on, uh, I think, ayahuasca, actually. 
Oh, I, I mean, it's not, sounds right. I've never, I've never actually tried ayahuasca, but from what I've heard, I could see that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for for those who don't know, ayahuasca is like LSD kicked up a notch. It's an incredibly powerful psychedelic. Uh, I haven't tried it either, but I've heard pretty much nothing but good things about at least the value of the experience, not necessarily the pleasantness. Mm. But yeah, let's see. I've got I've got an article up here, uh, and it's from a professor at Hebrew University in Israel. Uh, there's two plants in the Sinai Peninsula that have the same psychoactive components as ones found in the Amazon jungle and are known for their mind-altering capabilities. They're basically, you can pretty much make the same ayahuasca drink with these plants, apparently. Really interesting. Yeah, and I think there's also the, the idea of the burning bush is, you know, it could, one, be interpreted as a, you know, drug-induced hallucination, because that'd be like a pretty typical thing to see when you're tripping on psychedelics. But the I think the other thing is that it's something with the bush, and you know, I'm not up on my Bible studies, but the bush could have also been a symbol Shame on for you. I know, no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> for what he was consuming in order to have the vision, right? Mm. Yeah, but it makes sense that like this drug has been used in rituals for a long time, and it seems to be like revered for that reason in many of these cultures. Well, and if you don't know kind of like what psychedelics are and to be clear marijuana is a psychedelic when consumed certain ways yeah it would be pretty easy to think that by taking this plant you're communicating with god right that would not be an unreasonable assumption (laughs) yeah exactly some type of higher consciousness yeah it's like something you're communicating with at least and i think you know we to be fair a lot of people would still say there's something else out there (laughs) that you're communicating with uh, on some of this, but I think for others, it's like, oh, cool, that's just some crazy stuff my brain is doing, right? <laughs> but you can see why it would be such a such a central element of these like spiritual quests because you can't really get that experience any other way uh, when you're sober. I mean, maybe if you go crazy in the sweat lodge or you know lock yourself in silence for long enough or things like that, you can get some level of hallucination. But I don't think you can get close to what you can get on a high dose of THC or, you know, psilocybin mushrooms or ayahuasca or anything of that nature. Yeah, I there was a Joe Rogan episode a few months ago, I think. It, it wasn't Terrence McKenna, uh, who wrote like a bunch of books about LSD and other hallucinogenic drugs, but it was his brother. Dennis? Dennis. I, yeah, that was his name. Yep. And he's the one who's doing more of like the pharmacological research on it. Mm-hmm. Did you listen to that episode? I probably did. Yeah. I always listen to that stuff. Pretty interesting. I mean, uh, cuz I hadn't like I hadn't been as exposed to that world until listening to that episode and I mean the way he described it, which I mean seems to be consistent even with marijuana in some ways is, you know, your brain obviously filters everything you interact with, right? So everything you see, everything you're looking at, everything you're interact paying attention to is obviously you're looking at it through a filtered lens. Is probably the best way to put it. Yeah. And the way he described it with psychedelics and, you know, even marijuana and stuff is you some of the filters fall away. And in some ways, you start to see things more clearly. Obviously, in other ways, you see things less clearly, but uh, but you see things from a different perspective. So it puts you in an altered state of consciousness. And that seems to be the case for how a lot of like shamans or any of these sort of ancient religions would have viewed the effects of marijuana as well. Yeah, well, and it's uh, it's almost a better way of looking at some of the drugs because it's almost a framing problem, right? Mm. I think if you frame a substance as making you hallucinate or have a psychedelic experience, then that comes off as one way. But if you frame it as it helps you 
like appreciate more of what's already around you and in your head, that's a very different framing, right? Right. Even if it's having the same like end effect on the user, right? If it, even if it's the same experience, it's a very different way of looking at it. Exactly. It's a framing problem. That's the best way to put it for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's like a, I always say that for certain things, it's like they have a marketing problem, not a product problem. Right. Right. Like this is one of those, right? Where it's like the actual product might be, you know, fairly safe and not actually, you know, like it's, yeah, you probably shouldn't be walking around tripping all the time necessarily. But in terms of, you know, the actual danger to society, it's not, you know, nearly as bad as certain other things, which might be legal. Yeah, exactly. So, but they have a marketing problem or a framing problem. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good way to put it. Definitely a marketing and framing problem. Well, and, and I mean, speaking of the marketing and framing problem, the distinction between hemp and marijuana was really interesting. Yeah, I actually didn't know they were the same plant. I like vaguely knew they were, but knew there was something about them not being the same plant. But I feel like to most people, they just kind of get lumped together. It's like hemp is another name for marijuana. See, that's and it turns out that that's true. And then I was thinking they were like related or like very similar, but not the exact same. And yeah, I was totally wrong about that. Well, no, I mean, you were basically right, because hemp is basically just the non psychoactive version of marijuana. Right. But I think genetically, they're the same, right? It's different. It's the same species, but different. Oh, I guess it's different varieties of the same species. Yeah, I think it's exactly it's different varieties, same species. Just like there's different kinds of marijuana, this would be like it'd be effectively a non psychoactive strain, right? But it's still what's the scientific name like cannaba sativa or something? Yeah, it's in it was in the book. But it's interesting because you know hemp, you can't really smoke it and get anything. You'll you'll get the CBD physically beneficial aspects, I think, but there's no THC in it, so. Right. If you smoke it or drink it or anything, like nothing perceptible is going to happen to you. But it's been outlawed as well just because it's so closely associated with the psychoactive version of the plant. Yeah, talk about throwing the baby out with the bathwater there. <laughs> Seriously. And it's yeah. it's kind of crazy because that was the most striking thing about this early history in the book is how much of society depended on hemp up until the 18 or 1900s even. Yeah, what was it? Clothes, rope, paper, oil. Rope, paper, fabric, oil, other industrial uses. They mentioned this later in the book, but anything that you can do with cloth, wood, or oil, you can do with hemp, basically. <laughs> so if you look around you, like anything made from petroleum, right? So plastics and all of that, you can make it with hemp anything soft basically jeez so yeah rugs shirts sheets ropes anything that could be done with hemp you can make paper it's kind of wild just how versatile of a plant it is and hemp seed is very nutritionally dense as well it's very high in protein for its weight yeah it's supposed to be quite good for you i think and omega-3s yeah there's a lot of good things about that as well and then i loved how uh top the thing about thomas jefferson yeah. Thomas Jefferson penned the original draft of the Declaration of Independence on Dutch hemp paper. I mean, there's so many of these. Like, Yeah. <laughs> you could use it as money in the 17th and 18th century in the US. Amazing. Like, that's how valuable it was. I mean, I don't know if you, I don't know if you or your, your parents have bought like hemp seed, but my, my parents have. And it's, uh, if you look at the label, it's in, it's grown in Canada. It's imported. Oh, that makes sense. Even though it would grow so well here. <laughs> but Well, that's the crazy thing is that it's legal to buy hemp products. Right. 
but it's illegal to grow it. Right. So we import all of it. Yeah, we have to import all of it, which is ridiculous because apparently, I mean, that was, and they mentioned this in the book too, that was part of what made the US valuable to England is that hemp grows really well here. Yep. So mid-century, I think this was 1700s, it says Mm mid-century hemp was America's third largest crop exceeded only by cotton and tobacco. Yeah. So more than any other food crop. And part of why we wanted to do that, too, was that, I mean, like George Washington was making the colonies grow hemp so we could reduce our reliance on England. Right. (laughs) Because it was so versatile that by having our own stash of it, it would be easier to get off of, uh, you know, easier to revolt, really, to not need them anymore. Yeah, I think Washington called it a national security issue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like the first national security issue. It's like now we worry about oil. And like at that time it was it was hemp. Yeah, which is amazing that then I don't know. It's like so that I'm not going to say, well, I'm going to say it, but then I'm going to roll my own eyes at myself. <laughs> That's what made me think that, <laughs> you know, the, the marketing of a product or a the public opinion of a product can just make something super illogical happen. Yeah. Yeah. And it just like makes you realize how important the PR battle is for different things. Yeah. And I, I don't know. It just like made me made me think of like, what are the products which today that might be, you know, in vogue or people use without thinking about it? Because it didn't seem like they were thinking much about hemp. It, like if you probably told George Washington, if you told him that hemp at one point in time and the future of this country would be uh, illegal to grow, he would probably think you're smoking something (laughs) he probably would (laughs) yeah no i mean like especially 200 years later when people are getting thrown in jail for 10 years for having right (laughs) like a single marijuana plant that's that just seems like completely ridiculously at odds with the original philosophy towards it right so yeah i don't know it just makes me makes me wonder like what is like 200 years from now are there any things that we take totally for granted that will just be like completely illegal well and stuff you know what are we treating or what is illegal now or treated as like a bad thing that used to be so commonplace and accepted and that we're wrong about now right i would say like psychedelics are probably in that category yeah definitely yeah but I'm trying to think like what other things dietary stuff right like dietary fat animal meat yeah there's got to be other stuff duels let's bring duels back oh duels yeah yeah you've been yeah. you've been pushing for that i would i would be if that was part of like the nat 2024 platform i'd be i'd be on board <laughs> <laughs> yeah just <laughs> write a letter to trump this is my single voter single issue voter cause. yeah exactly <laughs> duels <laughs> No, I was thinking I was uh thinking about the dietary fat thing the other day when I saw the WeWork thing. I must have missed that. But then I saw that they what was it? They they banned meat or something. They didn't ban meat. They said you couldn't expense any meals with meat and that they weren't going to have meat at company events or something like that. So if you took like a client out, you couldn't have a like you couldn't have meat at that meal and neither could the client. Well, you could, but you would have to pay for it. Interesting. Yeah, I don't like it's stuff like that where let's say that got momentum. I feel like that would be viewed in 200 years as being just like completely bonkers. Kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess it doesn't have that much momentum. It's just we work right now. Yeah. It told its 6,000 employees that it won't pay for any meals that include red meat, poultry, or pork. Hmm. What about fish? That seems okay in that in their category. Yeah. I guess fish is okay. Hmm. Fish lives matter, man. Fish lives matter. Fish lives matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, it... I mean, actually, this is kind of like the the funny argument against vegetarianism, 
right? Is that there's something like what a billion cows on the world? Yep. Supplier. So it's like, what do you want to do? You want to just murder all those cows, right? Right. Because like, what other use are like? Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to be able to support that much cow life. So you you your actions are going to directly reduce the number of cows that can live on the world by like ninety nine point nine percent. Yeah, like they might even go extinct if it wasn't for humans. Like pretty much. I mean, basically every animal we have not domesticated or eat is going extinct. Yeah. Well, that's that's <laughs> What was the book that we covered earlier that something like 50% of all non-domesticated fauna have either gone extinct or on the road to extinction in the last 200 years? It might have been Homo deus. Might have been. Yeah. Yeah. Sapiens or Homo deus? One of the two. One of the two. I mean, if you're not useful to humans, then you don't really have much place in the world anymore. It was that one because I think he was talking about wheat, right? That was like the same section where he was talking about how... Yeah, I think that's right. Like wheat was just a wild grass and then humans decided we like it and... Or I guess wheat adjusted themselves. Wheat decided it liked us. Yep. Yeah. Hey, cows are like probably way more populous now than they ever were in the history of the world. Yeah. So. Chickens, pigs, fish. Yeah. I do get the argument against eating chicken, though. I find that one kind of compelling. Is it the the cages and the, the farms, or is there a dietary argument? Uh, well, there's both. But if you want to reduce the amount of suffering you're creating mm. through your diet, yep. the best way to reduce it is to stop eating chicken. Because it's... Yeah, it's such a little meat per... Exactly, yeah. So a single person might eat a whole chicken in one sitting or in one day. Right. You're not going to eat a whole cow. (laughs) Yeah, it would take me months to eat a whole cow. So, you know... That actually makes a lot of sense. Your per meal suffering amount is significantly higher with chicken than with any other meat we regularly consume. That actually makes a lot of sense. And if you you believe like, uh, you know, like animals have whatever it is, like a consciousness or soul or whatever... Some awareness of suffering, at least. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense, actually. Huh. I've never thought about that before, but I kind of buy it. I think I'm going to reduce my chicken content. I think there's also a semi-compelling argument to avoid it for dietary reasons. Yeah, I've heard something about that, but I never really dug into it. Have you... uh, Do you have like a quick summary on that? Uh, I mean, I just don't like chicken that much. So it's, it, it was pretty easy for me to be like, oh, cool. I'll just not eat it anymore. <laughs> so I, I didn't I didn't like research it as extensively as I would have to to stop eating something I do like. Yeah. But the, the main arguments I've heard are one that it's just like by far the dirtiest mass produced meat that we ever come across. Yeah, I've heard that just, you know, disgustingly raised. And I mean, I would eat I've had like, you know, very small farm raised chicken before or far or chicken in, you know, other countries. And it's like a different animal. You know, it's just it's amazing. Like you can eat it medium. Oh, it tastes very, very different. Yeah. But if you buy mass produced chicken in the US, you have to cook it well done. Like we just sort of assume that that's how you have to cook chicken. That's not how you have to cook chicken. It's how you have to cook chicken in the US, right? Because it's so, Hmm. so dirty. That actually makes sense because I was thinking about that. Actually, that came across my mind the other day when I was making some chicken. I was like, why is this the only meat that you have to cook well done? It's like, that seems odd. Yeah. The other argument I've heard is that chicken has a lot of estrogen compared to other meat. So, well, I bet part of that is they want to increase the breast size, right? Yeah. I think that's a big part of what's going on is that they they pump them full of estrogen to increase the breast size and then that goes straight into your body. Well, and they charge the most for breasts. Like chicken breasts cost more than chicken thighs or other parts of the chicken. So probably for a profit per chicken metric that that makes the most sense. But yeah, it's not good for you. (laughs) Yeah, let's see. I'm trying to... Wow. Uh, Feeding like cheap 
chicken, so like the worst chicken to your to children, has actually triggered premature development before because it has so much estrogen in it. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean, obviously in young girls, right? But yeah, that's pretty scary. <laughs> that is good to know. I think my chicken content is going to go way down now. Yeah, right. Chicken consumption. <laughs> I I think eggs too maybe they must have some of it as well depending on where you get them i again like if you can get super well sourced chicken it's probably not a problem but right like you were saying yeah yeah if you're if you're eating stuff just like regular chicken from the grocery store or the biggest thing i worry about too is like restaurants right right that's what i was just gonna say that yeah (laughs) because you you don't see the label yeah you can't see the label you don't know where they're sourcing their food from i've started asking at restaurants i've started asking what oil they use Oh, yeah. And it's shocking. It's almost always soy or corn. Yeah. Which sucks. I mean, I can't believe that's like, I would almost, I mean, I know canola oil is not that good for you, but I'd much rather have that than soy or corn oil. Yeah, I mean, canola oil is pretty bad too. I'd, I'd lump it as bad as the other two. Oh, it, it definitely is, but it's slightly more expensive. So it makes you just like, when, <laughs> as soon as they say like soy or corn, you're like, oh, I know you're just like cutting. And even if it's a nice restaurant, like yeah. a lot of times they'll say that. I found that certain types of cuisines will use coconut more often. Mm-hmm. So like Thai food, because it just like is part of their cuisine. So I think that's, it's more normal. But even then it's not always the case because it was a Thai restaurant I was at a couple weeks ago and it was soy. So, well, I was amazed. I mean, I was in that, I was at that retreat in Arizona uh, last week, which is, uh, and for anyone who wants to look it up, it's called Miraval. It's basically a mindfulness health resort in the middle of the Arizona desert. It's really cool. But they, I was just kind of blown away by how kind of weak their grasp on health science was. Hmm. Because, you know, on the one hand, they would, they had a smoothie bar and they had a little thing at the smoothie bar that says, we don't serve juice because, you know, juice is bad for you, right? It's just like you take out all the plant fibers, it's bad. We, prefer to make smoothies for you instead i'm like oh cool that's like very knowledgeable of them but then yep, they're woke yeah they're, they're <laughs> woke here but then they did stuff like uh they wouldn't serve meat really at lunch huh so i had to like ask for them to go make a meat dish that wasn't on the menu for lunch and again they were doing all of their cooking with canola oil <laughs> huh interesting it's just like how can you you know on the one hand like super well understand this stuff and then just like completely miss it over here yeah compartmentalization but i mean they were also selling four thousand dollar healing crystals in the spa so they had a little bit of uh, a little bit of woo-woo mysticism going on there yeah i was gonna say it's also uh they seem to be more on the like I don't, there's almost like two sides to like the woke uh health people yeah <laughs> right you have like I think we talked about this before. It was like the people who go vegan, it's like they're like almost there. <laughs> they're like better than the conventional diet, but they're also misinformed about a lot of things. Well, actually, you know, this this could be a good way to break it down, which is health conscious for signaling reasons and health conscious for health reasons, right? Because when you're health conscious for signaling reasons, you focus on the visible demonstrations, right? Mm, and the label. Yeah, the label, the being vegan, the smoothies instead of juices, like all of that stuff. But you don't care about the invisible stuff like, you know, the oil you're cooking with as much because it doesn't project how healthy and virtuous you are. But that's a really good point. <laughs> if you're trying to be healthy for like personal reasons, then you care about that stuff because you're like, well, shit, this is really important. You know what kind of oil I'm doing all my cooking with. And that, that might be the main distinction. That would be major because you're putting that in every, like you're eating the oil for sure. So yeah. yeah. And for the resort, they're trying to signal to the guests that they are feeding you healthy foods, but almost no right. guests go into the kitchen and see how they're cooking it. 
So they don't need to really worry about what's going on on the back end. They just have to worry about how it looks on the front end. Mm, misaligned incentives there. Yeah. But mm. all right. We should probably get back to the book. Back to marijuana. We're solidly into the first like 10 pages. <laughs> yeah. I think oh, this might be a good point to interject to the origin of the word marijuana. Oh, yeah. thought that was really interesting. Yeah, let's see. I mean, just jumping forward a little bit, right? It's like people were having marijuana all the time. Like after the Civil War, you could order uh, hashish candy from the Sears Roebuck catalog. Right. <laughs> right? You get it delivered to you. People were just having it all the time. Uh, and also back then, people didn't smoke it. You ate it as a candy. Right. Like hashish, which was the, what was it, like a tincture? Yeah, I think uh, the hashish tincture. Well, and then hashish is the blended um, what you would today call a hybrid strain. Right. So, you know, it's a mix of THC or it's a mix of sativa and indica. Um, and it's got the THC and the CBD. So it's got like everything in one. Right. This comes up later in the book. I didn't know this, that a lot of modern strains don't really have much CBD anymore because they've, yeah. uh, they've pumped up the THC so much. And to be just so everyone's, you know, on the same page, THC is the psychoactive component and CBD is the healing component. So. Yes. One issue with a lot of modern weed strains is that they've pumped up the THC so much that the CBD has gone down basically in par with it. Well, and they're sort of counteracting components, right? From what I've, at least from what he was talking about in the book. Yeah. It sounds like you can have one or the other, or like there's basically a balance, right? They're almost zero sum. Yeah, they're zero sum. So it sounds like in old, in older strains of weed, it was about 4% THC and then like some percent CBD. But now you get like 9% THC. Yeah. So the weed's like more than twice as strong today, but you've lost a lot of that beneficial side. So Yeah. And so going back to what you were saying about how everybody was using it, I mean, I'm sure people weren't like as high as what we would imagine like a high person is today. Yeah. Because the strains were just probably much like maybe half the THC content or even lower than that potentially. Right. So it's probably like a low level pleasure. You know, they're probably like happy or moderate, like mildly high. They were also doing edibles. Yes. Right. Which is a very different experience. So they would have been kind of like hallucinating and stuff too. Yep. And then I didn't know about for the edibles. I've, I've uh, personally experienced this, but uh, I've always thought edibles were stronger than smoking. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like didn't realize there's a liver component to that. So apparently your liver processes THC or synthesize or it creates a... Or it turns into another compound, which I forget what that is, but it has a four times stronger effect than smoke THC. Yeah, because I guess it, the liver doesn't do anything when you smoke it, but when you consume it, it right. can process it. And since it's all fat soluble. Yep. Well, I think when you smoke it, it just goes, when you inhale, it can go straight from lungs to bloodstream. Yeah, I think that's right. But then when you eat it, it has to be kind of digested, which is why it takes so much longer to hit you. Right. But when it does hit you, it hits you much, much stronger. Yeah. And something about the liver processing is where the psychoactive component comes in. Because mm -hmm. when we were talking earlier about how, you know, it is psychedelic, it's mostly psychedelic when you eat it or drink it. Right. And that's that's why I, that's part of ayahuasca, too. You can actually smoke ayahuasca. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's. But it's like a very different trip. Whereas if you drink it, you get the much longer crazy trip. It's the same thing with uh, people probably heard of salvia, right? So that I mean, that was legal for a while and you could smoke it and you would just get like an insane crazy trip that would last like five minutes. Oh, so it'd be short. Yeah, apparently it wasn't very fun. <laughs> like it would be <laughs> very kind of like crazy. But again, it's another plant and apparently people never used to smoke it. They would chew on it and it would give you a much milder effect. So hmm. method of consumption is a pretty makes a big difference, pretty big deal for, yeah, the experience of the drug. 
Also, something makes so much more sense now from the Count of Monte Cristo, which I read last year or maybe, yeah, like about a year ago. Uh, he kept eating like this green, this green stuff and then would go on these like wild like hallucinations. Oh. <laughs> and yeah, that like now he talked about that in the book where like that was the hashish trend in, in Paris, I think, or in France. Yeah. That he was talking about. Exactly. They, they had the, the hashish clubs, the dinner clubs. Yep, exactly. Or you would go and you would eat your uh, hashish, like, it sounded like kind of a pudding almost. Yeah, there was like pistachios in it and like other stuff. And it was, yeah, it was like, supposedly tastes good and makes you hallucinate. What more could you want? Then you would eat, eat for an hour and then it would start to kick in. You'd all have a great time. Yep, exactly. <laughs> but back to what, what you started to get at, the, the term marijuana was basically... Not invented, but very popularized. It was like Mexican slang. Yeah, it was Mexican slang. And then U.S. prohibitionists started using it to kind of take advantage of growing racism against Mexicans in in the 19th century. Uh, before that, I think, what would it be called? Just like hashish, I suppose? Hashish. Ha- I think hashish was the blend or the, the little tincture. Yeah. And then hemp. I mean, they definitely called it hemp. Cannabis, I think, was also a word that they used right right it looks like i mean in the sears robot catalog it was called hashish so people must have known what that word meant right exactly that was the amazon of its day yeah exactly <laughs> but yeah i mean a lot of this prohibition stuff started happening right after the mexican-american war or after the mexican revolution sorry because as the mexican revolution was going on there were hundreds and thousands of mexican immigrants fleeing to the u.s southwest looking for safety and work and it was a bigger cultural thing in Mexico. And then you had all of these dispossessed Mexicans along border towns in the U.S., you know, smoking marijuana pretty regularly. And I think that just created a ton of anti-marijuana and anti-Mexican sentiment. Right. Right. And I think there was also a uh, correlation, not causation thing going on here. So yeah. all of these sort of poor refugees, right, were coming over the border and and they happened to smoke marijuana. And uh, people started equating the two and saying and starting to think that, oh, this thing causes this effect. Yeah. Right. As opposed to it being a, oh, these things are just correlated. They're not like this is not causing them to be refugees. <laughs> yeah. That's because of something totally different. It's a way for them to like relieve the terrible situation that they're in. Right. It's not exactly that they got kicked out of the country because they're just high on marijuana all the time. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, but, you know, to your average observer, you might see like, oh, here's all these like poor brown skinned people with nothing and look at what they all do. Yep. There must be a relationship. Now, if I smoke weed, I too will turn into a poor brown person. Exactly. I think that's how it works. That's exactly how it works. Yep. (laughs) But that's why the first places to outlaw weed were like California. California was literally the first one to outlaw marijuana use in 1913. And then I think they were pretty quickly followed by Texas and maybe Arizona or somewhere. But, you know, as as Lee says in the book, it really had nothing to do with the drug, right? He says, uh, it was a move that served as a pretext for harassing Mexicans, just as opium legalization in San Francisco 40 years earlier was directed at another despised minority, the Chinese. In each case, the target of the prohibition was not the drug so much as those most associated with its use. Typically, in the United States, drug statutes have been aimed or selectively enforced against a feared or disparaged group within society. And that's a huge reoccurring theme throughout 
all of the book and all of our drug history, right? Yeah. You know, in the in the late 1800s, they were outlawing opium to harass Chinese. In the early 1900s, they're outlawing marijuana to harass Mexicans. In the late 1900s, they're enforcing marijuana illegalization more to harass blacks. Like, it's really just like a constant theme that whoever the government or society is, you know, scared of or racist towards, they use drug laws to go after them. Right. Actually, as part of my research for this episode, I had asked around for, I guess, what are the arguments to keep marijuana illegal? Mm -hmm. Just because this book is so obviously on one side, right? I was just trying to like not be 100% biased, even though I think I still am. Um, (laughs) And uh, But one of the things that came back that like some people just sent me some articles and stuff. And uh, one of the things in the article was um, this is a way to like catch people who are doing other crimes mm-hmm. but are uh you might not be able to catch them doing those other crimes so like it's almost like the al capone argument yeah like they never actually caught him for being a gangster they caught him for tax evasion so people brought that up but again it's like that argument is effectively if you go down to the philosophy of it it's saying we'd rather have a thousand innocent men locked up than have one guilty man walk go free and it's kind of like the flip of what our judicial system is really set up to be right well and it's also, I mean, if you just, if you take a cursory look at the history, the way that plays out is that you've got tons of, you know, poor inner city people getting arrested on minor possession charges and spending years in jail. Exactly. And this came up somewhere in the book, too, where it's basically like police decided that they just didn't want to go after the actual drug dealers. They wanted to go after the low-level consumers because they were easier to catch and cheaper to prosecute and there were more of them right and so it made the police officers like look better well and it doesn't even get to like the confiscation of property oh yeah which doesn't very often doesn't get returned right so if you're also like i mean it's like legal corruption yeah oh very much so if you go after the users it's like okay i can take all the money in their house too because they happen to be a user yeah well it's a shame and i think i mean we can just we can speak from our own experience that these laws really are enforced extremely selectively. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, do you know anybody who's ever been arrested for marijuana possession? No. Yeah, like, I don't either. But I've, I'd say 90% of my friends have possessed and or smoked at some point in the last, you know, four years. Right. And it's just like not a thing that happens in more affluent communities and social groups. Right. But, right. you know, there's probably people who were less than a mile away from us in Pittsburgh who would get harassed for this kind of stuff all the time. Yeah. Even though like one mile away and probably at Pitt as well. Yeah. Right? There, there's probably thousands of people who would, who were doing it or possessed it. Exactly. You could walk into pretty much any dorm with a sniffer dog and you'd have a, a field day, but that doesn't happen. No. Yeah. You don't see a narcotic officer walking through more wood. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, you're. I, I think you're totally right about that. And then if you even take it one level further, it, and it's really hard to measure these things, but I know one person who's who's gone to jail, and his his uh, take on the experience was that it's like if you want to become a criminal, the best way to do it is in jail. He said it's like the Ivy League of trying to become a criminal. Yeah, <laughs> like because the, there's people who've done every you know kind of thing you could imagine. So. You know, like the the net effect of if let's say you take somebody who's 16 and get or let's say 18 even and gets arrested for marijuana possession, like I wonder how many of those people end up graduating to be other types of, you know, more violent criminals, maybe. And it maybe they wouldn't have had that if 
they didn't go to jail for marijuana because they could have actually gotten a job or because think about it you come out of jail for marijuana possession you have that on your record now yeah you're gonna have to become an entrepreneur or like a day laborer those are really it's not a lot else and not to even mention all the other people uh which he talked about in the book to his credit uh, all the people who are sort of self-medicating over the years yeah. for different conditions that they have, but then their their workplace may require a drug test, right? So that kind of excludes them from a bunch of jobs just from, you know, just because of the fact that they smoke marijuana. Yeah, exactly. And we'll get into some of those crazy cases later. I mean, the, oh, yeah. there were a few that were just like mind-blowing. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that it was good for some medical stuff, but I didn't fully realize it until reading this book, just how broad its applicability is. Yeah. And I think that we have, because uh, I mean, there's got to be like over a hundred things cited in this book that you can use marijuana to treat. And I think the natural reaction to that is like, all right, well, that seems very overblown and I'm like very skeptical of it. But I think that we have that reaction because most of our drugs are like single target drugs, right? They're meant to do, you know, one thing. Whereas cannabis has what does he say like 200 different active compounds in it right and that's where i think i mean that's another thing i think we're going to see as the legalization efforts increase right like my my dad brought this up i had a good discussion with him about this because he worked in the pharma industry for a while and he he basically said it all comes down to like the incentives because to get a drug you know past uh, the fda process it costs usually in close to a billion dollar level so to go through all that effort you need to have something that you can get a patent on. Oh, yeah. And have exclusivity. And the problem with a plant, right, is like you're not going to get that patent. So, I mean, he even mentioned a few examples. There's drug companies that have created uh, like, what is it, synthetic versions of different cannabis compounds. Oh, yeah, like Marinol. Yes. Yeah. So they can patent that, right? But as he brought up in the book, there's a lot of uh, synergistic effects that some of these different components have and then have i mean it's it's like the whole fruit versus juice yeah it's a good analogy yeah or uh whey protein versus steak right yeah exactly it's very very different yeah steak is not just the protein that's in it yeah you know there's so much else and, and actually to your point about like having a multi-targeted uh therapeutic like that the keto diet is a simple example right i mean there's so many things that the keto diet has been shown throughout history to benefit yeah right like and improve but a drug company can't patent the keto diet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that, that's actually a perfect analogy because that can cure or it can at least significantly reduce the effects of epilepsy, but it can also cure skin diseases and right. autoimmune disorders, like just all kinds of random stuff. Obesity. Yeah, obesity. So yeah, I mean, I think there are there are natural solutions that can have very broad spectrum effects on helping your body. Yeah, for sure. Because it is kind of remarkable just how many things they've been able to see a benefit of marijuana for. It's like the the guy who was going blind from glaucoma. Yeah, that was wild. He literally, like, as long as he smoked a few times a day, his eyes never went bad. He went for like 30 more years, I think until his death, still being able to see when he should have gone blind after a year or two. Like, that's bonkers. And his doctor was, like, shocked. Yeah. <laughs> his doctor testified under oath that, like, whatever he's doing, he should keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and I, like, I've got a family friend in Virginia who has uh, Parkinson's. Okay. Yeah, I've heard this as well. Apparently, the absolute best thing for him, as reported by him, is uh, marijuana, but he can't get it. Like, mm. it's not, you know, you can't really get uh, legal medical in the state. And so, uh, like, his 
friends have to sneak it to him so he can self-medicate. Wow. Like that's his best solution. That's kind of a crazy situation to be in. Yeah. The one thing that works better. <laughs> there were a couple cases in here talked about though, where like I didn't realize there's a federal marijuana farm in Mississippi. Yeah, that was cool, right? <laughs> And basically because of this guy who had glaucoma. Yep. He, I mean, let's see. We can we can skip ahead a little bit to his story. Yeah, we could give that. Yeah. Um, because he, let's see. It's like the compassionate use. Yeah, the compassionate use. Something. Well, that was the California law. Right. Oh, yeah, because we're skipping all the like Negro. <laughs> I saw that quote where it was like uh, cannabis causes white women to have relations with negroes yeah exactly it was uh it, marijuana will make mexicans and blacks like lust after your wives yeah <laughs> and that was how they got white people to go against marijuana which is just bonkers was it taleb who said that if anytime somebody invokes the children or women they're probably lying <laughs> yeah it's like a rhetorical technique that they're just using to yeah push for something else almost certainly because he's talking about Syria, right? I think he, he mentioned that. Yeah. Well, and that's how they got some of these first laws passed because yeah. the the first one that was created was the Marijuana Tax Act by Roosevelt in 37. And this law was so crazy because it required you to get a stamp in order to sell marijuana. And if you didn't, then you could be sentenced to like pretty brutal punishment. The first guy who... Uh, was arrested for violating the tax act, was arrested the day after it passed. So this guy probably didn't even know that it was a law, right? He probably didn't even know. Yeah. Like this is a pre-TV, pre-Twitter area. This is 1937. How fast does news of new laws pass? But he was arrested the day after and he was sentenced to four years of hard labor Jeez. and fined $1,000. Which at that time- And for selling was... a couple of marijuana cigarettes. <laughs> so it'd be like if I, you know, handed Neil a joint for like five bucks and then got- put in a labor camp for four years all right that's crazy that's insane yeah like the punishment does not fit the crime at all no not at all and that's how uh, malcolm x ended up in jail too yep because he was selling at jazz clubs but well it seemed like there was a lot of the, i mean that was just like a very casual thing to do like it wasn't yeah and it, a lot of it was driven by this guy anslinger i think that's how you pronounce his name oh yeah <laughs> who basically let's see he started at federal no he he became the first director of the newly formed federal bureau of narcotics exactly in 1930 and he was there for more than three decades yeah he was there forever way too long and in 34 uh the fbn was gonna it was in the great depression there were no tax revenues the bureau was gonna get slashed and so anslinger put together this huge campaign against marijuana as a way to secure more funding from the government so that he could keep his job Amazing. You would have actually thought that would be the perfect time to get rid of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Yeah, right. When there's no tax revenue. <laughs> like, oh, man. There, there is a different, you know, there's an alternate history out there somewhere where the, the bureau just got slashed and everyone's running around on pot and mushrooms right now. It's a much better world. <laughs> <laughs> there's no President Trump in that world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's probably not. <laughs> there's no opiate epidemic. There's no, like alcoholism Ooh, on that note actually i came across so i think i told you yesterday i found out in maryland uh which is where i'm currently sitting that like medical is legal now and there's like dispensaries so there's this doctor who i like i was googling to see like how what's the landscape like here mm -hmm. and uh there was this doctor who started basically this company it has a um it's called like green doc or something like that but it, they basically have like they help you get like the card and then they also owned some dispensaries yeah and his whole like about us page was that 
he said he got tired of basically prescribing opiates and seeing people get addicted to them oh yeah so he like quit that practice and this is what he's doing now full-time that's great because he said i just don't he's like most of the things i was prescribing opiates for this is a better less addictive way to treat it so does he is it one of those things where you can call in and get a script too or because those services are uh i know i was reading like the process you have to go in to get the diagnosis and then the like recommendation but then i think you can take that wherever like you get a card it's kind of like california it sounds like or how california was before or i guess california is probably still like that right for medical uh you don't need a card it's oh yeah because it's just recreational now yeah it's just recreational now so then do you is it like uh yeah i guess this is so interesting because it's not even considered an over-the-counter drug then because that's a federal issue no it's just like alcohol yeah but i can tell you how it was in california because i thought this was the most hilariously amazing thing ever um when i was living in sf in spring 2017 i got there and i you know i started looking it up and there was an there's an app there called ease i've heard of that yeah it's like postmates or uber eats but for marijuana products could there be a better company idea like i know right that's like a guaranteed success (laughs) and they they also had doctors on staff to write you prescriptions so oh that's so smart (laughs) you open up the app and it's like do you have a prescription yes or no no okay would you like us to help you get one and then you pay 25 dollars. you skype with a doctor within like two minutes there's basically no wait time you tell the doctor your you know quote unquote symptoms and then he goes oh yeah it seems like this could really help you writes you a prescription it gets uploaded to the app so you can like see your card in the app and then you can immediately start ordering from the delivery service i think I think that from downloading the app to like having the person at my door, it couldn't have been more than 25 minutes. That's amazing. (laughs) It was just the craziest thing. That's the world I want to live in. That's like, that's like San Francisco's redeeming quality. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, how is this still in business? But also obviously this is still in business, right? Yeah. Actually, their delivery model was really cool too, because they didn't have that much of a like central location. They had a warehouse somewhere, but then drivers would just fill up their cars with merchandise and then (laughs) drive around certain neighborhoods. And then when you ordered, the order went straight to the driver who was closest to you, and then they would just stop by and drop it off. So you would pretty regularly get a delivery in 10 minutes. That's amazing. You can't even get your like Grubhub or like uh, seamless orders that quickly. (laughs) One of my friends would always joke that if he had a medical emergency, he would call Ease instead of the ambulance because Ease would get there faster. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. And hey, San Francisco's not falling apart. No. Oh, wait. No. Just that's probably a bad example. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, I mean, we're we're not at that part of history yet. You know, we've got this fucker Anslinger. Anslinger guy. Because and this was the crazy thing is that all of these research initiatives keep going on to like understand marijuana, and they keep coming back and saying it's not harmful, it's helpful, and everyone ignores them. You know, there's this uh, LaGuardia committee. It's like LaGuardia, the New York mayor, I want to say. Yeah, mayor. Who like examined everything about marijuana. And they basically debunked every single thing that Anslinger and the FBN were saying about it. The committee refuted basically every claim and said that America had been needlessly frightened. And nobody cared. <laughs> Anslinger just like kept on going. And I, I think the craziest thing was Nixon. Like looking at how Nixon treated all of this was ridiculous. Um, uh, this is farther down than I thought it was, but he basically fairly blatantly said that he was doing it for racist reasons. Yeah, here we go. Um, 
Yeah, protesters and his racism. So Nixon linked cannabis to loudmouthed racial protesters. They're all on drugs, he brusquely told an aide. Susceptible to bouts of paranoia, the commander-in-chief blamed the Jews for spearheading efforts to legalize cannabis. You know, it's a funny thing. Every one of those bastards that are out there for legalizing marijuana is Jewish. What the Christ is the matter with the Jews, Bob? Nixon asked his closest advisor, H.R. Haldeman. In private conversations with his inner circle, Tricky Dick also savaged African-Americans. Nixon emphasized that you have to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizing this while not appearing to, Haldeman wrote in his diary. So he's got all these people around him that can just pretty blatantly see that he hates Jews and African-Americans and he's creating and enforcing this drug war to uh, just to come down on them. Right, because you can't like just make a law that it's illegal to be black yeah. or that it's illegal to be Jewish. But you can do this. So this is his proxy way of doing that. Well, and his kind of bout with the Mexicans, too, because he did that whole uh, initiative called Intercept, where they just came down on the border really hard for a short period, seized as much marijuana as they could, and tried to really pummel the Mexican economy. And that was really just to get the Mexican government to crack down on cannabis cultivation because it was like 10% of their exports at the time. And Nixon just wanted them to stop sending it into the U.S. So he started punishing the people bringing it in more to you know hurt the government than to do anything domestically. But I, I liked that it basically did nothing except increase the price of marijuana <laughs> and make more Mexicans want to farm it. Yeah, which ironically makes it more attractive to deal it. Well, to deal and to grow it, right? Because, oh, wow, the price of this just went, the price of this just doubled. Yep. So, you know, I can work in a factory or I can, you know, farm and make like three times as much. It's much more attractive. Exactly. I also love the... uh his distinction between alcohol and marijuana. Oh, yeah, that was so ridiculous. That quote was amazing. So I'll just read it from from the book. Nixon, a heavy drinker, drew a rather fuzzy distinction between marijuana and alcohol. A person doesn't drink to get drunk. A person drinks to have fun, while a person smokes pot to get high, the president told a friend. So silly. Yeah. <laughs> I also love this image of him. Or It goes on to say that uh, addicted to sleeping pills and amphetamines and often soused on liquor, Nixon staggered through the White House in a daze, talking to portraits of past presidents that hung on the walls. So it's like, and this is another common theme, is that pretty much everybody who's heavily against legalization is a hypocrite in one way or another, where they're, you know, they're either alcoholics or they're taking painkillers or whatever it is. It seems like a fairly common theme. You don't see a lot of people who are actually that straight laced. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, I wonder if there's some type of like projecting going on there. Probably. I don't want to psychoanalyze them, but it seems like it. Well, it's like all of those uh, conservative Congress people that are closet gay, but are, you know, vehemently anti-homosexual. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. That or like very pro-family, but then have like multiple mistresses on the side. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like a Newt Gingrich type. Yep, exactly. Yeah. The problem with America is the, the death of the family. Yeah, exactly. See that all the time. But yeah, a lot of these people seemed like kind of hypocrites. And, you know, again, that comes up. I think Anslinger was on painkillers or something as well. I don't remember what it was. It's in here somewhere. Yeah, it was definitely there around uh, where he started it. But yeah, he was he was on something. I mean, he was on, I think, amphetamines and and a heavy drinker. Something like that. Uh, I mean, the next kind of interesting thing that gets into is all of these agencies that are created to try to prove that marijuana is terrible. So like, what was it? The the NIDA, I want to say. The what? The NIDA. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I remember that. I can't remember what it stands for. But basically, they try to do these investigations to prove that marijuana is terrible. So they went to Jamaica. Oh, yeah, I remember this. To study mothers raising their children um, while smoking weed. And they were trying to prove that if you smoked weed, it like really screwed up your kids. And the, these results are just so crazy. I'm going to read from the book. Uh, the ganja moms and their kids did not appear to be harmed by marijuana exposure in the womb. There were no physical abnormalities, no cognitive deficits, and no neonatal complications, nor were there any discernible differences between the three-day-old babies of mothers who used marijuana and the three-day-old non-exposed babies. Uh, They were surprised to discover that after one month, the babies of mothers who had used ganja throughout their pregnancy were actually healthier, more alert, and less fussy than one-month-old infants whose mothers did not take cannabis. Test results... For uh, one-month-old infants whose mothers also ingested ganja while breastfeeding were even more striking. Heavily exposed babies were more socially responsive and more autonomically stable than babies not exposed to cannabis through their mother's milk. Alertness was higher, motor and autonomic function or autonomic systems were robust. They were less irritable, less likely to demonstrate imbalance of tone, needed less examiner facilitation than the neonates of non-using mothers. And then when they were retested at four and five, their team found absolutely no difference between the children of ganja moms and children of non-users. So so in terms of side effects of a medication, I mean, this is as at worst as little side effects as you could possibly get, meaning no difference. Well, and not even that. I mean, I would want to do more research, but this almost makes me want to would make me want to have like, you know, my partner smoke while child rearing, right? It almost seems like a beneficial thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, cool. You have less postpartum depression. You have less nausea. You, you know, can manage the birth easier. The child is healthier. Right? Like, it's all good things. And I wonder, I mean, he goes on to talk about stress as being an anxiety, as being a big oh, yeah. problem in America. And I wonder how much of this is tied to just reduced cortisol levels. Right. Right. Because I wonder, I'm sure that shows up in breast milk. That would probably get passed to the kid. Yeah. In breast milk. Yeah. I'm sure that shows up in breast milk. So that would probably pass the kid and make them more anxious, make them more irritable. Yeah, I wonder if that's like it might all tie back to cortisol, which is I mean, we don't really have a good way to control cortisol right now. No. Besides, like, I mean, you can regulate your own emotional state to some degree, but there's not really like a drug that you can take for that. Yeah. Although I guess you could take (laughs) some opiates, but (laughs) not really the best thing to do. Yeah, that's not a not a great solution. Meditate. Yeah. (laughs) Because, I, I mean, obviously, we've never been new mothers and we will never have that opportunity or not so yeah. good opportunity, but... Don't discriminate. No. Anything is possible now. That's, that's I guess. Um, let's just say, I can, I can only speak for myself. I don't intend to have that opportunity, but <laughs> I can't imagine it being a low stress thing. So, no. <laughs> like high cortisol levels seem to be, I would guess that's the norm. Yeah, absolutely. But despite all of this research showing that there's basically nothing bad about it. Uh, Reagan comes into office and picks up everything where Nixon left off. And Nancy Reagan in particular was, you know, like the just say no, don't do drugs kind of like judgy mother that, you know, kind of just kept making the problem worse. Right. And she too was another hypocrite, right? She was a, a chronic user of prescription tranquilizers and, I mean, her daughter basically said that her mother's high-profile anti-drug advocacy may have been a form of denial and a subconscious cry for help. Sounds like she was just hopped up on opiates all the time. Yeah, definitely not good for your brain either. So. Definitely not. But it was also a great point where uh, that he makes kind of in that same section. So I'm just going to read it from the book. Mm-hmm. Uncle Sam cried wolf too often. 
First, marijuana was said to create maniacal killers, then to produce inert masses of lazy indulgers. When teens caught on, they weren't getting the straight dope about marijuana. They were more likely to ignore warnings about genuinely dangerous drugs. I think that's a really good point, right? It's like there are drugs that are not good for you, like for sure. Um, Like I think none of us would say like, yeah, heroin is harmless. But when you have a, you know, I guess a government and a whole sort of social structure that tells you something about probably I would say the most common illegal drug, right? Would marijuana be? Yeah, definitely. And that's probably most people's first experience with with an illegal drug. And then you've realized that, hey, this was this doesn't seem to be right. All the things they've been telling me, you're more likely to think that, especially as a kid, right? You're more likely to think that, hey, like they're probably not telling me the truth about other things either. I mean, I still kind of think that, right? Yeah, it's possible. It's so obvious that, you know, we were lied to for most of our lives about so many health related things. Actually, that's a great point. It's not just drugs. It's other things, too. Yeah. It's like, and I, you know, I, I do my research and I'm not stupid, but there is still a part of me that's like, well, you know, maybe heroin isn't actually that bad for you, right? Well, I guess they used opium in uh, in China for a long, long time. Yeah. And to be fair, that's like, I think, very different. And of course. Yes. I think this is like a process, like heroin's like a processed concentrated form, right? Yeah. Something like that. Because, I mean, there's a lot of drugs. That, so oxycodone is also made from poppy seed, right? Right. At least partially. It's all coming from the same drugs. So... That's probably why people switch from oxy to heroin once they, you know, run out of oxy. But there, there is, I mean, I still have that suspicion where it's like whenever, basically whenever an authority says something is unhealthy, I'm kind of like, mm, is it though? Right. You know, what's funny is like this may have inadvertently created a whole generation of libertarians. <laughs> oh, probably. Probably. Well, and I think part of it too is that, you know, we grew up in the internet era. Right. Where... We can hear something like this on TV, and then in 10 seconds, I can Google it and be like, wow, that is just so blatantly false. Right. It's like I I tweeted about this last week, but uh, at the same resort at Miraval, I sat down to dinner with someone, and she started talking about how uh, we shouldn't eat red meat because it has no nutritional value. (laughs) And I was like... I was like, that is just such a lazy lie. Or like, you didn't take 10 seconds to Google that before you just like repeated what you heard at your seminar earlier, right? (laughs) And I mean, also, how do you think like carnivorous animals survive, right? Are yeah. they just like living on water? I, I was just kind of like blown away, right? That, you know, one, people don't fact check that stuff. Uh, but two, it's a perfect example of how, you know, I think back in even 20, 30 years ago, if you went to a, a seminar at a, you know, exclusive resort and somebody, you know, who's a certified nutritionist or whatever said that, oh, meat has no nutritional value and you should stop eating it, you'd be like, oh, shit, I didn't know that. I guess I should stop. Right. But now we can just literally pull out our phones in front of them and be like, hey, you're wrong. Right. 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 How did did you call them out on that or did you did uh, did you let it pass? Oh, no, no. I, I called her out. I, How did that discussion go? I she kind of just backed down. Ah, OK. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering how entrenched she was in that. I started rattling them off. Right. Because I, I think that it was as I was like, all right, well, OK, so you've got the protein, you've got the fat, you've got like a full profile of amino acids, you've got iron, you've got some magnesium, you, like you've got vitamins E and or not E, you've got D and A, I want to say. I think A is in e, Yeah. Yeah. And so it was just like, all right. Uh, and then she stopped. But <laughs> it, I don't know. I mean, I think this is part of why we have this uh, disenfranchisement with authorities talking about drugs and stuff anymore because it's like these opinions are so lazy right and it's so easy for us to fact check them now and to be like that's just wrong right 
Like in 10 seconds, you can pretty quickly realize whether or not something someone just said is true or false. And when you get tons and tons of false data, you're just like, all right, well, I can't trust you anymore. You're not a good resource. But yeah, so Reagan came in, basically just made everything worse. Nancy Reagan wasn't really much help either. And it kind of like it gets worse for a while. You know, after the 50s and 60s, the the laws get stricter. The mandatory minimums get harsher. You've got people who are getting convicted on basic possession charges, getting 10 years in jail. And it's really clearly a racism thing because he's got this stat here that whites and blacks used illegal drugs at the same rate, but blacks were arrested, prosecuted, and jailed at much higher rates. Right. And I think that fits with some of the experience we talked about before, where if you're in like an affluent area, you know, and I recognize that, like, yes, I'm saying that there are going to be more whites than blacks in affluent areas, but that's definitely how it was in the 60s. I don't think that's controversial. Yeah. Then you're, you know, you get treated very differently by the police. And so you've got a mix of racism and kind of preferential treatment to different parts of society. And it, like just so many people needlessly going to jail. Uh, in 1980, 500,000 people were locked up in state and federal prisons. And by the time Reagan left office, the number of prisoners had doubled to like over a million. Yeah, which is wild just in one presidency. Yeah. For it to double. Like, did Americans get that much worse or did our <laughs> laws get that much crazier? Yeah. <laughs> right. It's absolutely the laws. And it just kind of, yeah. like, it really keeps going in this direction all the way through. Clinton, uh, who, you know, seems like he should have been softer on drugs because he's, you know, a liberal president, but he, you know, says here he escalated the war on drugs. Right. He broke his campaign promise and declined to reinstate the compassionate program for seriously ill Americans, you know, again, forcing people like the guy we mentioned before with glaucoma into getting it illegally just so that they can stay alive or not go blind or, you know, not suffer terrible symptoms of these diseases. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, even, I mean, take like, that's a, I would say a more serious medical thing, but I mean, actually all these things are serious, but even somebody who has like depression or something, right? I mean, you can sort of self-medicate with this and to get thrown in jail for that. Well, anybody going through chemo, you know, that seems like the biggest one to me. Yes. The chemo one is a huge, yeah, that's a huge example. It's so good for chemo. You've got, they, they gave this example of the kid with, I think leukemia or something where yep, yep. He, they were secretly medicating him with weed as he was going through leukemia or as he was going through chemo treatment. Yeah, they gave him cookies. Yeah, the next day he would be running around the hospital on his tricycle like pretty much good to go while all the other kids are, you know, lying in bed completely strung out. Yep. Pretty remarkable difference. And I, I've heard that before too that it's like marijuana and fasting are basically the two best things you can do for chemo treatment. Oh, wow. And ketosis, actually. It's like if you can do those three, then you can basically just like go about your life totally normally after you do it, which is pretty drastically different from how most people experience chemo. And I wonder if a lot of that is like those three things are related to uh, what's the system that they were talking about? The endo. Oh, yeah. The endocannabinoid system. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's like a very poorly understood or it's increasingly more understood now, but it, it has been historically very poorly understood. But there are like can what is it, cannabinoid yeah. uh receptors in your brain and and throughout your body. Right. It seems. Which explains why it can affect so many parts of you. Exactly. Because if the if the cannabinoids can bond in different parts of your body to, you know, facilitate some action at those different sites, then that would explain why it can be so good in so many different areas. Right. 
Well, and then the and then the uh, I think there's a section here where yeah, THC stimulates the CB two receptor, right, and the CB one receptor. I think right, CB one receptor mediates psychoactivity. CB two regulates immune response. And number one, it's almost like a crime that this has been prohibited to be researched for so long. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's like the crime should be in the opposite direction, <laughs> just with all the like anecdotal evidence of, or, I mean, pretty well established evidence about the benefits for chemo glaucoma and i mean seems like dozens of other things i mean the people pushing for keeping it at least on the medical side completely illegal that feels like a crime yeah like if i if i had one of those conditions or a family member did and they weren't able to get it because of some law like i would be very angry about that understandably i mean yeah the the list of things it seems to help with just goes on and on i mean just to the list of cancers, right? Prostate cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic, breast, cervical, leukemia, stomach, skin, bile, lymphoma, uh, liver cancer, lung cancer. There's, you know, published research that it helps with reducing the spread or even facilitating the, you know, curing of getting over all of those cancers, right? Yeah. And we don't fully understand the mechanism, but it seems that this is somewhat tied to that CB2 receptor. Yeah, something with the immune system. Yeah, because they said they found CB2 receptors in, they said they're very prevalent in the peripheral nervous system and the immune system, but they're also, they've also been found to be present in the gut, the spleen, liver, heart, kidneys, bones, blood vessels, lymph cells, endocrine glands, and reproductive organs. Yeah. Pretty much everywhere. It's everywhere. And I mean, even stuff like Alzheimer's, right? There's some evidence that it can prevent Alzheimer's if you start smoking it later in life. That's bonkers. It's bonkers, but it's also somewhat, you know, horribly ironic in some sense because, you know, Reagan died of Alzheimer's. Ironic or deserved. Or deserved, yeah. Sorry, that was a mean thing to say, but that's how I feel. Yeah, no, but it's like, it's it's kind of unfortunate though because it's, you know, the thing he was so against, right? Can you imagine if that research had started in like 1980? Oh, yeah. I think he died in like 2000, right? So Yeah, exactly. Imagine if they found like, I don't know, some type of... Uh, the thing he was trying to put people in jail for could have cured him. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I would I would have loved it if all the doctors were like, you can't have it unless you change the laws. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just hold, hold him hostage. That's the other thing in this section that I just didn't realize is how many doctors have sort of like been for this doctors and researchers. Yeah. Well, it seems like doctors just have known it for years. Yeah. It doesn't seem like they were that surprised. No. Well, and it sounds like they tell their patients, you know, like under, you know, the, the like hush hush mention that it could help. Right. I mean, and they'll be unsurprised if their patients are self-medicating with it, right? But they can't do anything themselves. Right. Well, then I think there was the, uh, the, and kind of the flip side of this, right, is all the kind of crimes that happen with uh, like Oxycontin. Yeah. And how the company basically paid a large fine, but none of the executives had to spend any time in prison. Um, and what was the number? It said, it said Purdue Pharma's multi-billion dollar blockbuster was linked to thousands of overdose deaths. Of the almost 500,000 hospital emergency room visits in the U.S. in 2004, more than 36,000 involved oxycodone. That's so crazy. So um, seems much more harmful than marijuana, but what do I know? It's 100 emergency room visits a day from oxy. So yeah. you're looking at like four per hour. Like every 15 minutes, someone goes to an emergency room from oxy. That's not good. No. Meanwhile, no one has ever died from marijuana. Like ever. Right. As far as we know. And then this is where I get somewhat tripped up in the debate. And like, I'm sure there's a better way to answer this than than I have. But people always bring up like, 
they'll bring up things like oh like it's a gateway drug kind of thing like and he kind of he really dispelled that in this book i thought um the whole gateway drug kind of myth because anything that you would say about this would also apply to alcohol and tobacco and unless you want to also ban those things um which maybe there's people who do i don't know i don't quite see a like on the recreational side, I don't even see where the argument holds. Well, I think the only way it's a gateway drug is when it's illegal, right? Yeah, that's a good point. It's, you know, it's this hard to get and then you have to create a relationship with a dealer, right? And then one day the dealer's like, oh, do you want to try some like MDMA or whatever, right? Then, you know, that is how it can be a gateway drug. But it, I don't think it's the doing it any more than you know, doing alcohol can be a gateway drug to other things or... um it seems like oxycodone is the big gateway drug right now because that's something where it's like people take it and they get so addicted to it that they need to keep taking it or else they, you know, lose their shit. And so they switch to heroin, right? Like that's right. definitely a gateway drug, but the evidence just doesn't seem to be there for marijuana being like a strong lead into harder drugs. Yeah. Well, and here's the, and there was something I looked up for Colorado and Washington yeah. in relation to this. So there was a, you know, a, a, Drug Policy Alliance, which is, uh, I think, like a like a nonpartisan organization that looks at this stuff. Mm -hmm. They did a, a study on the two states and they found like the number one thing they found was teen marijuana use is unchanged. In both Colorado and Washington, state surveys have shown no significant change in marijuana use among teens since voters passed the legislative measures. Huh. I'd be curious to see how uh, like heroin use has changed because I bet a lot of people... Mm take marijuana instead of opiates to you know heal pain from medical procedures and then they never get hooked on oxy and stuff and so they don't need to transition to the harder drugs that is a really good thing to look at yeah i'd be really curious to see those numbers probably be hard to hard to measure just because like i don't know how it like how would you measure heroin use but I'm, I'm sure they could have numbers or back into some well they could look at how many uh emergency room cases there are that would be a good measure yeah, I think that's a really good way. I didn't look at that ahead of the episode, but I'd be curious to see. Yeah, I'll have to look. But anyway, I think, I mean, there's so much in this book, and so we could only do kind of a, a surface level look. But the biggest thing is, I mean, it's kind of amazing how political the history is. You know, it's not really anything about the actual dangers or concerns. It's really a mix of like racism and Protestant fear mongering. And all of the research around the benefits and everything, it's like fairly compelling. <laughs> yeah, it's just like it seems wild after reading all of this that something like this can be illegal and that people can be put in jail for it, right? Like it's, it just doesn't make sense. Right. Hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good, um, like showcase of, kind of what we were talking about in the beginning right like the framing problem or the marketing problem uh kind of taken to its extreme yeah where the fears are vastly disproportionate to the actual effects of the or probably even inverse to the actual effects of the the actual substance and i think a perfect quotation from the book to end on is uh this one that he says the economist the blue chip british magazine editorialized that the fda's stance on marijuana lacked common sense adding if cannabis were unknown and bioprospectors were suddenly to find it in some remote mountain crevice, its discovery would no doubt be hailed as a medical breakthrough. 
scientists would praise its potential for treating everything from pain to cancer and marvel at its rich pharmacopoeia, many of whose chemicals mimic vital molecules in the human body. Right? It's all just the history and the politics. If, if you're looking at it based on you know just what we know of it today, it seems like a pretty clear net good. Yeah. It seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's there's few issues which are like, hey, there's not really a ton of gray area, but this feels like one of them. Exactly. Oh, and here, you know what? I've got stats on the opioid thing. Oh, okay. States with active dispensaries saw 3.7 million fewer daily doses filled. States with home cultivation only saw 1.79 million fewer doses filled per day. So pretty significant difference. Yeah, not like that's not a trivial number. Yeah, not at all. So it does seem to help, but it makes sense. Yeah. It's logical. Anyway, uh, if you would like to join for our potential future getting high and doing recap episode, uh, that will certainly <laughs> be a Patreon only one. So if you go to patreon.com slash made you think you can uh, support the show and you'll get access to fun things like all of our bonus material. Uh, sober and not we've got our detailed notes for each episode that you can skim through if you're curious to read more details from each book obviously we don't get to everything in our book notes so rarely yeah very rarely (laughs) so if you want to actually has it ever happened i don't think we've ever no we've gotten to the end but we always skip things as we go along yeah we always skip things along the way and we jump around and stuff so uh yeah if you want all of our notes for these episodes you can get that in the patreon you can also get uh kind of a closed community where we can talk about the show the episodes you can recommend books uh, ask questions anything you want to talk about and then we'll also be doing some uh, exclusive one-on-one hangouts so well not one-on-one but two on many <laughs> hangouts <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where we can you know chat with you guys about anything related or unrelated to the show so uh, you can get all of that at patreon.com slash made you think and we appreciate the support of the show. You know, we, we don't want to do ads. We don't like it. We don't like interrupting ourselves in the middle or beginning of the show. We like to keep it natural. We don't ever want to worry about offending our advertisers by, you know, talking about doing drugs for two hours. So uh, I think, you know, it's the best fit for us. I think it's the best fit for you guys having a good podcasting experience. And so we uh, we appreciate everyone who is already supporting us there and everyone who is going to go support us after this show. It means a lot. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I've. I think just we've mentioned this before, but as listeners of podcasts, frequent listeners of podcasts, we definitely prefer this format over interruptions with ads. Yep. And I just skip through the ads anyway. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this just feels more natural. So definitely uh, check out the Patreon. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate that as well. Yeah, that really helps. Let your friends know about the show. And you can always message us on Twitter. I'm at Nat Eliason. And I'm at the Rail Neil S. And yeah, I think that's it. Oh, also, if you know, if you're strongly against contributing via Patreon, there are other options at majorthinkpodcast.com slash support, uh, mostly around shopping you might already be doing and how you can do that in a way that supports us. So you can check that out too. But we'd love to hang out with you uh, in the Patreon community and talk more there because that's been a lot of fun. So yeah, that's been great. And yeah, I think the seems like the subscribers are enjoying it as well. Yeah, so exactly. if you want to join that community and be with other smart people who like to think, go there and uh, yeah, we'll see you there. Now's the time. Yeah, now's the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, we'll see you there and we will see you next week. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.